we are going to talk a little bit about that the person who can get us to that wonderful place. And his name is Jesus. Amen. Amen. God's great gift, his great gift. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for your loving kindness, for your goodness and mercy, for just being our God. Thank you, Lord, and praise your holy name. Be with me now as I share these words that you have given me. And I pray that as you continue to work in my life, that these words will also find a lodging place in the hearts and minds of the people who hear them and that you will find a lodging, a lodging place in their hearts and their minds as well on an ongoing basis. Please, Lord, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what would you say <clears throat> is God's great, great gift, greatest gift? What would you say is God's greatest gift? I asked a few people today about what they thought God's greatest gift was. Someone said they thought the greatest gift that God had given them was their wife. Isn't that nice? But most of the people said the son of God was their the greatest gift, God's grace. G.W. Knight once wrote, when a person works eight hours a day and receives a day's pay for his time, that is a wage. When a person completes with an opponent, competes with an opponent and receives a trophy, that is a prize. When a person receives recognition for his achievement, that is an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, winning a prize, and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a good picture of God's unmerited favor, grace. The scriptures will give us a clear image of grace. The Bible Reveals that in the beginning, God created a world, a world with no imperfections or flaws, and God was pleased with his work. God looked at his work, for it says in Genesis 1.31, that it was good. Is that what he said? Yeah, very good. He said it was very good. That's a little bit better than just being good. So God was pleased with the work that he had done in creation. Man was the crowning act of the creation of God, made in the image of God. Adam and Eve, the parents of the human family, enjoyed a perfect, harmonious, and face-to-face relationship with their creator. However, this relationship was severed. It was severed by disobedience to God's command to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan deceived them into transgressing transgressing God's command. Sin, therefore, entered God's perfect world and brought with it pain, suffering, and death. All of God's creation was affected, including the children of Adam and Eve. The scripture states in Romans 3, 23, That all have sinned and come short of his glory. 
In Romans 5, 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. The prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59 verse 2. And if you have your Bibles or you have other means of getting to Isaiah 59 verse 2. Join me there. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he will not hear. Sin separates us from God. And I think we all kind of know that. That sin separates us from being close to the creator. But God in his wonderful, magnificent love. Would not let us go so easily. God loved his creation so much that he was willing to offer himself through his son, Jesus. Offer Jesus as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for violating his command. You know, God has a moral order. God has a moral order. He has some principles and some guidelines that we are to follow. And when they are violated, they separate us from him. And so what happened was that the first parents violated God's moral order. And as a result, they were dismissed from the beautiful garden. We can thank the Lord for John 3.16 for it says that he so loved. And I like the fact that it's not just he loved, but he so loved. The emphasis on that he so loved us that he gave. Someone said that the way you spell love is G-A-V-E. It's all about giving. When you love someone, you're willing to give. That's what love is all about is giving of yourself. So God gave himself that whosoever believes in him should not perish. That means since the wages of sin is death, you don't have to die. I don't have to die. God says, if you believe in him and not just an intellectual belief, but a belief that transforms how we live. Amen. He says, you can have eternal life. And we can praise God for that gift of God in Jesus Christ. The human family can be reunited with the creator and be with him forever. Don't you want to be with God? Don't you want to live in heaven forever? Or live in whatever place he has in store for you? Don't you want to live with him? God said he has loved us with an everlasting love. God didn't just love us when sin came into the world. God loved us from the beginning. He has always loved us. But who's going to pay for the sins of man? Are you going to pay for your own sins? Or is someone else going to pay for the sin? Who will pay for the sin of humanity? And, and, and I tell you, I, I really like this passage in Genesis. Where we go to Genesis 22. And Abraham and Isaac. You know, Isaac, in a sense, is Abraham's only son. He is Abraham, Abraham, Isaac is Abraham's only son in the sense that he was the son of promise. 
He was God's, the result of God's doing. Abraham and Sarah tried to produce someone as a son through their works, through their own hands. And this is what Cain did. Cain was also caught up in doing his own works. And this is why he brought fruit to the altar rather than a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, which he was supposed to do. Doing his own works. But here Abraham, it says, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder. In fact, let me just back up just a little bit. And let me just go and start at the beginning here at verse one. For I want you to, if you haven't read this before or haven't read it in a while, I want you to, to get to get the gist of this. It says, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham, reading at verse three, chapter 22. So Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac and his son, his son. And he split him, split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Interestingly, it says on the third day, Jonah spent how many days in the well? Jesus spent how many days in the grave? It says, and on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and, and he saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Now, obviously, he either believed that God was going to do something special that will enable him to bring back Isaac. I'm thinking that maybe he didn't know that he was going to really kill Isaac. I think maybe if he did, that God would resurrect Isaac. Could this be almost his faith in the resurrection? So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid on the altar upon the wood. He laid him upon the wood and the altar. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. Do not lay your hand on the lad. It's interesting. He says, going back to verse 8, 
my son, God will provide for himself the lamb. God not only will provide for himself, but God will provide himself as the lamb. That is wonderful. Here he is giving Abraham and he's giving you and me a glimpse of what he is going to do before it is even done. Abraham, I want to encourage your faith. This is what I'm going to do for the entire world. This is what I'm going to do for every single person. I'm going to give myself as a sacrifice on the altar. Who will pay? God says he'll pay. Brothers and sisters, if that doesn't get you a little bit excited that you don't have to pay for your sins, then that God will, I don't know what will get you excited. Because when you think about it, when you think about it, if you and I had to die for our own sins, there would be no life afterwards. God in his love said, I am going to die in your stead. You and I cannot even begin to comprehend the depth and breadth of such commitment that God has and such love that God has for you and for me and for the entire world. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2 verses 4 to to 10. Brothers and sisters, we are saved by grace. We're not saved by works. By keeping the law of God, and I may have to come back to this, but by keeping the law of God doesn't save us. By merely keeping the Sabbath doesn't save us. Amen. By simply not lying and stealing and killing doesn't save us. What saves us? It is the grace of God. It is the grace of God through the blood of Jesus And I want to share something with you. Taken from the book, God's Amazing Grace, page 10. The servant of the Lord says this. By disobeying the commands of God, man fell under the condemnation of his law. This fall called for the grace of God to appear in behalf of sinners. Are you a sinner? Saved by grace. She says, we should never ever learn. We should never have it learn the meaning of this word grace had we not fallen. God loves the sinless angels 
who do his service and are obedient to his commands, but he does not give them grace. These heavenly beings know nothing about grace. They have never needed it, for they have never sinned. Grace is an attribute of God shown to undeserving human beings like you and me. We did not ask after it, but it was sent in search of us. God rejoices to bestow this grace upon everyone who hungers for it. Do you hunger for the grace of God? Do you hunger for his forgiveness? Do you hunger for his love? Can we talk about grace without talking about sin? The answer is no. There is no grace without sin. Well, let's say there is no applied grace without sin. Without sin, you can't have mercy, forgiveness, or redemption. For God is the embodiment of grace, mercy, love, and so much more. Grace and mercy, grace and mercy are not the same, although they are similar. Mercy is having compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Where grace is simply unmerited favor, divine favor, given freely, undeservedly to the unworthy. But here, brothers and sisters, here we are with this grace. Grace, marvelous grace, God's wonderful grace. And I want to share with you that God does not give sinners what they really deserve. Praise him for that. Amen. Amen. But he extends forgiveness, yet having the power to execute judgment for their sins, for my sin. I can only look at my life and see where God has brought me from. I don't know where he's taking me to, but I know where he's brought me from. And I know that if it wasn't for grace, I would not be here today. I don't know what God has done done in your life, but I know that grace has something to do with even your life. It says where sin abounded, where sin existed in Romans 5.20, that grace did abound or exist even more. Grace did not just suddenly appear out of nowhere. For God is the embodiment of grace. Think about it. God is the embodiment of grace. He's the embodiment of mercy. The embodiment of love, forgiveness, long-suffering, and so much more. These are attributes of his character. So when Adam disobeyed God, we know that sin and death entered the world But grace and mercy were already present. How were they present? Because they are part of who God is. Grace and mercy are a part of who God is. In Christ. When Adam and Eve sinned. When they sinned. And God was walking toward them in the cool of the day. And they were not there in their usual worship spot or communion spot or fellowship spot. God said, where are you? Can you just picture, brothers and sisters, can you just picture 
Mercy and grace is walking to commune with his, his children. Mercy and grace is looking for his children and his children are running away from him. Mercy and grace is saying, where are you? Where are you? Members of Stone Tower, mercy and grace says, where are you in relationship to him? Where are you in your thinking about him? Where are you in your service for him? Where are you in your devotion to him? You see, brothers and sisters, we are sometimes a little smug because we can get caught up into our positions in the church, in the world. And we can think that we're more than who we are because of our positions and because of our credentials. But brothers and sisters, it mean nothing to God. If we're not using it to the glory of God, what is it to God? So what I'm simply trying to communicate to you this morning is the fact that Jesus is the embodiment. Jesus, when you see Jesus, you see grace. When you see Jesus, you see love. When you see Jesus, you see forgiveness. When you see Jesus, you see forbearance. When you see Jesus, you see it all, graciousness. For Jesus wants us all to be saved in his kingdom. Don't you want to be in God's kingdom? You see, the, 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 the question that I've been asking is that, do you want to go to heaven? And people say, yes, I want to go to heaven. So if I were to ask you today, how many of you want to go to heaven? You would raise your hand and say, yeah. Then I would ask you, why? Why do you want to go to heaven? If you're not willing to spend time with God now while you're on the earth, why would you want to go to heaven and be with him there? You see, the conditions of heaven need to be in our lives on earth. We're going to make some mistakes. But God says, don't stay there. Get up. By the grace of God, get up and let me carry you on in the holiness highway, along the holiness highway. Yes, Jesus, the creator and the eternal son of God loves us so much that he came looking for us, allowed himself to become a human being. I mean, when you think about it, that God who said, let there be light, became a man. God who said, Let there be light. The God who got down and formed man out of the dust of the earth became a man. We can't comprehend it. We cannot comprehend the extent to which God went to to save us. To give us, to make it possible for us to have grace. Because this grace is not just simply a covering up. Of sin is power to live a life as victorious over sin. You know, God says he wants you to be victorious to him or her who overcomes. And we need to be overcomers. Jesus came down to this earth, became a man, lived a sinless life humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. If we look at a familiar text in Philippians, Philippians, the second chapter, Philippians, the second chapter, let me just start with verse five. It says, let this mind be in you, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Did you hear that? He didn't have to consider it being robbery that he took something away from God. He was God. He is God. And it says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Amen. Amen. You know, it's interesting. We all like to have high positions. We all like to be recognized for being somebody special. But you know, Jesus came and he was not trying to be, he was special, but not trying to be special in a sense. He was special, but he humbled himself as special as he was, being God, that he might be exalted. The, 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 the point here that I want to make is that before exaltation occurs, we have to be humble. God will raise us up to heights unknown, but we got to be humble. It's not until we realize that humility is critical I mean, you, you, you have ideas and, and I have ideas and you have a point of view and I have a point of view. You may be right. I may be wrong. I may be right. You may be wrong. But at some point, we, we have to come together and work this thing out. We have to be humble and submit ourselves. And when we do that, God will one day exalt us. For Christ also suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now here's an acronym for grace. It's not original with me. I found it somewhere. It says God's riches at Christ's expense. Think about it. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. That's an acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense for Jesus' death on the cross was the propitiation for man's redemption through Christ. And I like that word propitiation. Sometimes I may have a little problem saying it, but I like the word propitiation. Can you say it? Propitiation. Let me hear you say it. All right. You know what it means? It means to be atoned for, to appease. So here, Jesus' death on the cross was a propitiation for man's redemption through Jesus Christ. Propitiation is to atone, to appease, to regain someone's favor or make up for something you did wrong. Romans 3.25 says, Whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. That's what he has done. It says here, James 4, 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he said, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. 
For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, my sake, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we weren't even thinking about God, while we were doing our own thing, we didn't have God even on our mind, let alone our hearts. God said, I want to save you. I want to provide provisions for you that if you want to come home, you're welcome to come home. You know how we are sometimes as parents or some parents have been, you know, the child leaves home and you say the door is always open for you. God has made provision so that the door is open for us to come home because you said you want to go and be with God. You want to be with him in paradise. So there are some conditions to that, though. So here we are, brothers and sisters, Jesus on the cross, Jesus on the cross dying for us. We can't really appreciate his grace until we recognize our condition. Do you understand your condition? Do you see yourselves as you really are? It may take a quiet and private room to go and talk to God and say, Lord, have mercy. I should not have said what I said to that person. I should not have done what I did to that person. Forgive me. And then go to that person and ask for forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, we are preparing to meet Jesus in peace. And so he has given us this grace and the grace comes by faith. Faith in what he has done for us. Jesus has done so much for us. And the question is, has this grace always been? Has it is it has it, it has grace manifested itself in the Old Testament? Yes, it has. Moses received grace for the Lord said in Exodus thirty three seventeen, for thou hast found grace in my sight and I know your name. I know you by name. Gideon found grace in the Lord's sight. Judges six seventeen. Psalm eighty four eleven says no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. It says the Lord will give grace and glory. John 1.14, Jesus came to this earth full of grace, full of truth. And it says, for the law in verse 17 was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus. We can truly be excited about what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Lord. I cannot thank you enough for what you have done for me. You have truly blessed me in so many ways. And yes, I have faltered here and there. But Lord, you have brought things to my attention, to my mind. And you have caused me to repent of those things and and to turn away from doing those things. And and Lord, I just want to thank you 
for being patient with me. You know, God is a patient God. And he's waiting for some of you to make up your minds about him. Because just because we're in the Adventist church, just because we're in the church and we come just about every week, does not mean that we have fixed our minds upon him in a manner that he desires. By grace are you saved. Now, let's talk about this Galatians 2.21 verse where it says, if, if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now, we don't want to frustrate the grace of God. So when we talk about law and we talk about grace, they, they really go hand in hand. Let me see if I can go back to um, this page where the spirit of the Lord spoke through uh, this dear sister, Ellen White. She says, God's grace and the law of his kingdom are in perfect harmony. They walk hand in hand. His grace makes it possible for us to draw nigh to him by faith, by receiving it and letting it work in our lives. We testify to the validity of the law. We exalt the law and make it honorable by carrying out its living principles through the power of the grace of Christ and by rendering pure, wholehearted obedience to God's law, we witness before the universe of heaven and before an apostate world that is making void the law of God to the power of redemption. Now, not because we loved him, but does God love us? Yes, because while we were yet sinners, he came and died for us. So here we are, brothers and sisters. The law and grace work hand in hand. And I was thinking about this the other day. When you, when, you, when you run a stop sign, <laughs> when you run a stop sign and you violate the law, um, do they take down that stop sign? No. <laughs> it's kind of funny, you know, but I was impressed with this thought. You know, when you, when you uh, run a red light and um, do they go and say, Let's take down this light because Brother Parker has run this light and we need to take it down now. Is the law of gravity because I decide to go on top of the building and jump off? Do we take away the law of gravity? I guess my point then is this. Why do we want to take away the law? Why do we want to take away God's law? I'm talking about the Ten Commandment law. Why do we want to take it away? You see, it doesn't change. The law of God is constant. When Jesus came, he came to take care of the penalty of man breaking the law. His righteous life is now imputed to you and me when we accept Christ. And his righteous life now becomes ours. It's on us. So when we stand before God, who does he see? Does he see me or does he see Jesus? Jesus. When he sees, when you are covered with the blood of Jesus, does he see you or does he see Jesus? Jesus. Jesus. You don't want him to see you. You want him to see Jesus all the time. The law of God is, cannot be taken away. The law of God is perfect. 
converting the soul. Well, Paul says, I would not have known sin except for the law. The law doesn't save you. The law directs you to where you can be saved. And that's Jesus. Yes. I tell you. It's an interesting thing about this law and grace. But I'm convinced that it is important to put things in their proper perspective. I don't try to keep the commandments of God because the commandments of God simply are, 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 are about love. When you look at the commandments of God, it's all about love. It's about loving God first and loving each other for second. And we can't love each other unless we love God. This is where the Jews were having a problem. The Jews were having a problem because they were saying, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. But they were treating one another on Christ's light. They were taking advantage of one another. Love comes from God because love, God is love. So brothers and sisters. <laughs> do you love God? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Sometimes we, we get on each other's nerves. I know. I probably have gotten on some of your nerves. You've probably got on some of my nerves. But it's okay. We can work it out. If we are in love with Jesus, we can work it out. Do you believe that? I believe it too. And I'm excited about the grace of God. I'm so excited about what God has done through his grace. For had it not been for Jesus, had it not been for Jesus, you and I would have no hope. You and I would have no hope for eternal life. Now this thing of grace It's kind of distinct with the Christian faith. Can you think in any religion at all where someone has given themselves for you? Where someone has lived a holy life, a righteous life, a sinless life and died for your sins? Christianity is unique. In that sense that only in Christianity do you find God saving his creation. I want to share just a couple other little things for you with you. And I had mentioned earlier that until we recognize uh, the awfulness of sin. We really can't appreciate grace. And sin comes in so many different areas. I mean, if you have a television, if you have a a computer, sin comes in so many different ways. And I'm saying that we, we, we have to be ever so careful because we can come to church and we can study the Bible and we can do all these things. But then what are we watching on TV
Are we feeding the spiritual person? We cannot really appreciate the grace of God until we understand the awfulness of sin. And as we talk about grace, we can't leave out the reason that applied grace exists and why it is so amazingly wonderful. Grace is wonderful. Grace is wonderful. Grace is wonderful. And we should be thankful for it. That God would love us so much that he would extend to us this grace himself. I'm so glad that God did not leave this this work for us to work on ourselves. Because we would surely mess it up. But God, in his love for you and for me, reached down from heaven and said, I want you to be with me. And I want to send you a way home through my son, Jesus. Don't you love him for that? How could you not love him for that? How could you not love God who has done so much for you? This is the great gift. Grace is the greatest gift of all. We can exercise this grace through faith. And then it puts us on a justified level with God. Justified as if I had not sinned. Wow. And I'm a sinner. Praise God that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Amen. Amen. I want to just share with you in closing. This little story, Charles Spurgeon. And just so happened that this preacher has my last name or I have his, I guess. His name is Joseph Parker. I don't think we're related. But these two men, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker... They both had churches in London in the 19th century. And on one occasion, one Sunday, Parker commended, he he commended on the poor conditions of the children in Spurgeon's orphanage. Well, people went back to Spurgeon and said, hey, Parker's over there talking about your orphanage. Of course, Spurgeon didn't like it, didn't call Parker, but he took on the next Sunday and he preached about Parker, Joseph Parker. Well, it was the talk of the town (laughs) and it was in the newspaper and people were were talking and carrying on about it. And so the next Sunday he said, we went over to Joseph Parker's church and they wanted to hear his rebuttal. Joseph Parker said, I understand that Charles Spurgeon is not in his pulpit this week. And this is the time when they take up an offering for the orphanage. 
And I think we should do that right now. The people were amazed and they took up so much money. They had to come back three times because there was so much money given. They were so impressed. Well, during the week, there was a knock at the door of Parker's study. Spurgeon had come to visit him. And he told him, he said, you have done grace unto me. You have not given me what I deserve, but you've given me what I needed. Joseph Parker did not do tit for tat. He didn't go back and forth because probably the people who took the message to Spurgeon got it all wrong. He was talking about the children and their condition, not about the orphanage. We need to exercise grace. We need to be more and more like Jesus. Is that your desire today? Well, then let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together, helping us to reflect on your goodness, on your mercy, on your grace through Jesus Christ. And we can claim this grace by faith and it places us in a positive position with you. Thank you, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, those who might be listening online. I pray, Lord, that you would be with each of us. We all need your help, your intervention. So please, please, Father, help us to see ourselves as we are. See our spiritual poverty. We're more broken than we think. And I just pray that as we see our, as you help us see our spiritual poverty, that you will also help us to appreciate even more your amazing grace. The greatest gift God could have given fallen man. In Jesus' name I pray.